What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 130 with my guest Cameron Esposito. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, an hour or two of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction. Yeah, that's right. I'm throwing that in there. Uh, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go check it out. There are surveys you can take there. There, You can join a forum. You can read blogs. You can uh, support the show. Um, and you can email me through that. You can also email me directly at mentalpod at gmail.com. And mentalpod is also the um, is the um, Twitter name that you can uh, you can find me at. Let's get, oh, and I want to remind you that PodFest is uh, coming up next month. We're about a month away. And uh, the website for all the information about that is LAPodFest.com. And I'm going to be doing a show. I don't know who the guest is yet, but I'll be doing a show uh, Sunday, October 6th from noon to 2 p.m. But PodFest is that entire weekend, that Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And it's uh, it's at a great venue, and um, it's right uh, right near the ocean in Santa Monica, in beautiful Los Angeles. Uh, I kind of like that voice. Yeah. We're going to kick it off with an email. No, I hate that voice. This is from uh, listener uh, Roxanne. And she writes, "Uh, Hi, Paul. For the first time while listening to your podcast, I had to end early. I felt your guest crossed a line asking me to empathize with rapists and pedophiles. I wish I could ask David this question. She's talking about last week's episode, uh, number 129, with uh, Dr. David Hirohama. Um, And he was a... um, Clinical psych. He is a clinical psych. <laughs> Slow down. A clinical psychologist who worked for a year and a half at Coalinga State Mental Hospital in uh, in California, and uh, she writes: Is it true that uh, I've read uh, that male sexual predators report an extremely high rate of being victims of childhood sexual assaults, but the percentage drops dramatically when they are told they would be given polygraph tests to confirm their honesty? Isn't it true that much more influence that much more influential 
is their unwavering sense of entitlement to other people's bodies, which drives their sexual assaults. He gives me uh, creeps when he referred to a judge who would lock up a rapist or pedophile as a bad judge. Ick. I'm still a big fan and owe you a huge thank you. You and your guests, through you and your guests' encouragement, I have redoubled my efforts to get my prescriptions straightened out and have finally found groups to attend as an incest victim. The groups make me feel amazingly okay rather than ashamed. Don't get me wrong, there's still tons of painful work to do, but now I feel I have a strong foundation on which to build. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, um, you are welcome, Roxanne, and I appreciate you guys giving me honest feedback. Um, one of the things that is hard sometimes about doing the show um, when you're when you're used to doing stand-up comedy, you know, stand-up comedy, you know where you stand with the audience, but sometimes when I put stuff out there, I don't know um, um, how it's going to be received. And I think this next one is a, is a perfect example where you can see the gamut of how different people are affected differently by um, the same episode. This is from somebody who um, doesn't, who didn't disclose a name or an, or an email, Um and they write, Paul, I've been a Metal Pod listener for 18 months now, and I've loved every episode. I've yet to miss one, which is more than I can say about any other podcast I listen to. Oh, it's very sweet. Uh, I haven't communicated with you before, but have considered it, and after this most recent episode, I felt compelled to. I really did not appreciate the Dr. Hirohama episode. The fact that everyone he talked about was an offending child molester or rapist meant it left out a massive portion of those people, those who don't offend. There are so many of us, non-offending pedophiles, and our existence is one that is marked with constant longing, tempered with control, and can be absolute torture to face. I wake up day after day wishing I didn't have this monster to hide, knowing I'll do anything to not hurt someone, knowing that no one will ever know or give me a pat on the back for how hard I try. I attempted to talk to a counselor once about this, but he brought up how disgusted he was by pedophiles, and I immediately tamped it back down. I've never spoken of it since. By the way, shitty fucking counselor. Shitty fucking counselor. He should be ashamed, uh, uh, or she should be ashamed of herself, whoever that counselor was. Um, and I am giving you a pat on the back for living with that monster inside you and not acting on it. Um, and I know many of our listeners are as well. Um Continuing, uh, I think there are a lot of us that listen to your show, sad, lonely men and women. And thank you for including women, by the way. It pisses me off when people assume that all pedophiles are uh, male. Um, sad, lonely men and women who are cursed to lead sad, lonely lives, no matter how much therapy we go to or medications we take. All the words about uh, pedophiles are like this or, gosh, I just don't uh, get how they can be so horrible. And the Dr. Hiraham episode felt like a knife was being inserted right into my soul. I've, um, I'm lumped into that category despite all I try to do, and I know you were not doing it purposefully, but I felt hurt by what I heard the two of you say. I have obviously not left you a way to contact me. If for some reason you want to continue this conversation, please feel free to mention something on Twitter, the blog, or the show, and I will get in touch again. Please keep doing what you're doing. I am sorry, I suppose, for what uh, I am and for putting the weight of it on you, but I think someone should say it. Um, you are not putting... The, the the weight uh, on me uh, by saying that that this is the kind of feedback that I think can only help the show the more diverse uh, experiences that we get to hear about on the show the the better the show has a chance to be so I appreciate that and um, I th I think 
I wish people would make a distinction between um, pedophiles and people who have pedophilic thoughts. And I would put you into the latter category. And I think there is a huge difference between pedophiles and people who have pedophilic thoughts. So that's what I say on on that. Um, let's get to the interview, huh, motherfuckers? Wow. Did I really need to say that? Um, I'm going to take it out with a happy moment. This is filled out by Eileen, and she writes... Um, I remember a Father's Day where I took my father to his favorite restaurant when I was maybe 14 and it was just him and I and I got my dad's unconditional listening and had his full attention, which uh, was always very limited and we had a wonderful dinner together. That instilled in me to always do one-on-one time with your son and daughter where the attention is on them and really listening to them. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. (laughs) That is... Very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. If you go to a support group. It's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is one percent event. My body was abused. Ninety-nine percent judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. I'm here with Cameron Esposito, who uh, is a stand-up comedian, and I think we met the first time I saw you at Bridgetown, uh, the Portland Comedy Festival, right? like two or three years ago. Yeah, that would have been a couple years ago. Yeah, and I was just immediately struck by um, how personal your your comedy was, and um, I just like the way your brain works. Oh, gosh, thanks. That's like probably the nicest thing you could say to a comic, right? I mean, isn't that what we're working for is just to figure out how to be more and more personal? Yeah. Because like when we get there, then that's what people can't replicate. I exactly. Mean, right? That's what you're being hired That's what I. For. That's what I like to get. I like to get a sense of the human being behind the jokes. The jokes are always certainly great and they and they have to be there, but... You know, like that's that's what we were just talking about Richard Pryor a couple of episodes ago, and that's what always made his comedy so great to me was I got a sense of who he was as a person, and the funny was on top of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, really, we're only talking about like four things. All comics are only ever talking about four topics, so really? it has to just be yeah. your vision that is yeah. the specificity. Society, religion, your parents, and fucking. Yeah, and there's death, nothing and else. Maybe death, right? Which know? might also be your parents, or it could be religion or yeah. fucking, depending yeah. on what kind of death you're imagining for yourself. My first, uh, well, my only CD was called "Sex, Religion, and Death" because I was trying to figure out what am I going to call it, and I looked at every bit on it, and it was like they all <laughs> fall into one of yes. these three, <laughs> you, you three things. Covered it, and if you think about it. If you were raised Catholic, how can you not be obsessed about sex, religion, and death? And I was raised Catholic, so I know what you mean. Then here we go. Now we're about to start. I also was the theology major in college. Really? Mm-hmm. Where that, did you go to school? I went to Boston College, so good Catholic oh school on top God. of that. Are you from Chicago? I am from Chicago, yeah. I'm okay. from Chicago originally. Where about? I'm from the western suburbs, right near Hinsdale, Western Springs. Sure. Like a really nice, picket fancy. 
It's a lovely area. It's a super lovely. How do you know it? Where uh, are you from? Well, I'm from Homewood. Oh, um, sure. But my brother lives out uh, kind of near there. Oh, I and, didn't know that. That's... Yeah, and I've just. Uh, I didn't you know. know you were from Homewood. How yeah. adorable. Look yes. at us. We have many of the things yeah. in common. Yeah, that's where I'm from. So I'm glad uh, you've agreed to uh, to come do the do the podcast. And um, I'm just really interested to, to hear more about your, your life and your story. Um, where would be a good place to, to start? What, uh, what was your family life like? Sure. Well, I mean, I guess we're already talking about where I'm from, so we could give that a little bit more of a full color. Can I ask how old you are? I'm 31 years old. Okay. But I'm very youthful looking because of being a lesbian. Um, that and the side looking, mullet. And yeah, the side mullet. Yeah, you looking like a 15-year-old forever. Um, I'm 31 years old and I Yeah, I grew up in just a really I mean, super white area. There was one black family and um everybody else was pretty white. And like pretty white and um, pretty Catholic also area and really close family. My family is Italian. People sometimes are confused because I have a last name that might sound like it is Mexican. Plus, people think my name is Carmen. But yeah, I'm, a, I'm an Italian Catholic, like suburban girl. But my parents were both from these like really conservative Italian you're not Catholic rela- families. You're not related to Tony Esposito. Unfortunately, no, because it'd be richer. Since he is like <laughs> a very successful hockey player, yeah. but no, um, not those Espositos. They're doing great. Good job, those Espositos. But that's not me. And what else to say about growing up? Well, I was a little gay kid when growing you, up when in that you know? neighborhood. Not until college, really, because there was just nobody who there, when there's there was nobody around who was. I mean, I bring up the race thing because that was kind of emblematic for me of the lack of difference. You know, mm-hmm. we just there wasn't a there wasn't racial diversity. There weren't. I mean, it was even pretty taboo to have divorced parents. Although I had a bunch of friends who had divorced parents, but because it, I went to like such a Catholic school, they had like an after-school outreach program just for kids whose parents had been divorced that you had to like go to, and it was very. I, I mean, I stigma. Kn- yeah, I don't know if I knew of any family growing up that had divorced parents. Isn't that wild to think about with what's actually happening in the world? And I also don't know if I knew of any family that had happy parents. I was, I was <laughs> just going to say. Happily married parents. So my parents are, I don't get the sense from them that they are like stuck together and miserable. Um, they're really different people but they also have been together for this will be their 40th wedding anniversary and they really like each other a lot i think in this way that is like they're very bonded i can see that they are choosing to still stay together even 40 years in but that is not everybody's parents that i knew growing up certainly and i think that you're right yeah it's a lot of like we're gonna stick this out a lot of we're gonna stick this out which, yeah. you know, when you're doing it for the kids on a certain level, I, I have such respect for that. But I think it depends on how badly you don't get along and how well you can kind of hide it from the kids. I don't know if hide it is the, is the right yeah. word. but Or uh, maybe even, no, that's a great point. I also think 
if you can have separate lives and both be happy in that way? Because I guess that's kind of as my sisters and I have two sisters and as we've all gotten older and we need our parents less, then I've seen that they just continue to like be branching out and having more full lives each individually. And I think that that's another thing that if you're stuck in an unhappy marriage for the kids, like, please go do something that does make you happy. Because yeah. I think that's another thing I saw a lot. People that were, like, spending a lot of time and kids, hating each other. Yes, and kids really, really tune into their parents' uh, unhappiness. And a lot of kids, because kids instantly blame themselves, think, what can I do to make my parent happier? And that's such a, a quicksand. Absolutely. I also think that if your family is really... So I didn't have that. But I had kind of the opposite of that, which is that because my parents are like together and then um, my dad is adopted into his family at a time when that still would have been pretty controversial, like in a Catholic Italian mm -hmm. family for him to be adopted in the 40s was like a failure for his parents in a way and also really great for them. I mean, they were great parents to him, but it was like he was carrying a it's different now right uh, not that it's not still something that kids and parents have to process together but it's just like not so much a um negative thing right it wasn't like a, a an interracial couple in the 50s in the south right exactly <laughs> yes so he so he was carrying that into our family and then also my mom um wasn't super wasn't always very close to her family geographically or even emotionally um and so they created this family of their own that was like blood and really close to each other and so my closest friends in my whole world are my two sisters and my parents which is a weird thing for anybody who's in their early 30s to say i think but um it's kind of sweet though it is sweet it's also the opposite of what you were saying because you were saying it's a big burden on the kids when the parents are miserable it's also a big burden on the kids when the parents are like they just love you so much and that's oh. okay mm -hmm. um but like for instance it's it was a real risk for me to move here to la because i have always kind of been like meeting their expectations of being physically close by in case they needed me that's such a double-edged sword because it's so nice to feel wanted and important to them but there's this weird line that some parents cross um, and I'm not saying it's the case with your parents but where the child begins to feel as if a part of their life is being lived for the parent and that the parent doesn't have a life separate from them and I think that can that can really be kind of smothering and kind of fuck with your head a little bit because it's I don't know. It's it's like intimacy in a bad way. You know, it's like a neediness instead of intimacy. Well, also, how old are how old are you? I'm fifty. Okay, so there's also a, an interesting maybe generational gap here between you and I in that people that are my age, like our parents, also hyper. It's that like hyper scheduling. Yes, the helicopter parents. part of, and then that the, all the things that that translates to for the rest of your life. So, like, if your parents need to take you to 75 soccer practices, then when you are 20, they still kind of think that they need to take you to 29 <laughs> soccer. You know, like, it's like, yeah. I mean, my parents come to shows and stuff, and it's cute. I'm happy they're there, but I also don't, you know, it's my job, so I don't really need them do to be there. Do you feel like you want more breathing room from them? 
I feel like I'm so glad that I live here because it has actually improved our relationship. I always say that the reason I settled on Los Angeles is that's where I hit water. <laughs> <laughs> well, the okay, so the thing is, I felt like I was always trying to kind of run away from them when I lived mm-hmm. in Chicago. I lived in Boston for school and then some years after there, but it was it was kind of like this idea that I was like trying to tell them to leave me alone so I could live my own life. Now that I'm here, I there's such a great physical distance that I feel a lot more comfortable being the one that is reaching out. And I don't feel like I have to like they can't just show up at my house, even if it's just like to bring right. me presents, which is very nice, but they can't show up at my house. So then I call them a lot more, and our actually our relationship has, is really great right now. And and are you excited then when you go home and you get to see them? Yeah, it's a little bit intense because, again, I have... So, I mean, I lived on the same block with my two sisters before I moved here, and my one sister is married, so her husband as well. We like, all lived on that same block. And um, Near home? In uh, No, downtown in uh, Logan Square, which is like a really hip neighborhood in Chicago, but half hour, you mm-hmm. know, half hour drive. And then my parents would come down a lot because, like, we were all located so close together. I mean, I feel like every day I could have gotten a call that was like, hey, mom's over at my house. And then I have to go to, like, that sister's house. Or then, you know, my dad's at my house and they have to come to me or whatever. And it was just very – it is really nice to go back there. But it's also – now all of that is, like, in four days as opposed to a lifetime. What was the attitude in your family, in your neighborhood about – gay people so two nights ago well first of all i am enfianced i'm engaged to a fabulous woman who's congratulations thank you i was also a comic she's great and um she i don't know what we're how this came up but two nights ago she we realized that like i had never seen the puppy episode of ellen which is where she comes out i'd never seen it because i was remembering that i wasn't allowed to watch it so that is the attitude. Like, I watched it two nights ago. It's that episode of her show where she comes, comes out, out 15 okay. years ago. Okay, not her talk show, her sitcom. Her sitcom, yeah. Yes, I remember it. Of Ellen. Um, and it's the... It was huge. It was a huge deal when it happened. Huge deal, and Oprah's in it, which I because I had never seen it. I didn't know. It's actually this crazy moment that really made me... I literally cried while I was watching it because I was thinking at the time that maybe Oprah must have been... I mean, she was like, who could you get that would be a more powerful woman to be in that show? Because they have her as set up as Ellen's therapist. And then Ellen says, like, I just want someone to tell me that it's okay that I'm gay. And then Oprah leans over and actually, like, physically touches her. She puts her hand on her thigh and she goes, like, Ellen, it's okay. And I was thinking, I mean, basically, it's like when that episode came out, it was like they got God to come and say that to her. You know what I mean? Like, who could they have gotten that would have been more influential? So anyway... Uh, shout out to Oprah. Good job, girl. We're, I'm so stoked that you were part of it. But uh, yeah, I wasn't allowed to watch that show. Um, what, did your parents say why? I that episode I, or that show? I think that so she came out as a person before she came out on the show. Mm-hmm. So I remember when she came out as a person, then I was not allowed to watch it. I was also not allowed to watch Rosie O'Donnell's talk show. Or like, I mean, I was I was a teenager. Like wow. I was a teenager when this was happening. Uh, one time there was a there was a kiss between two women on, like the Video Music Awards or something. Yeah, I remember. I mean, it was super sensational. Like it was yes. not a. It wasn't passionate. It was like a novelty. But I remember my dad walked in. I was the, I was just like the VMAs were just on, and he like walked into the house and saw that I was watching that. And he 
told me to turn it off. So, um, and get out of the room so he could jerk off. <laughs> no, because it was a sin. It was. A, I mean, maybe. But so, so your parents were pretty hardcore Catholics. Are they still? Uh, well, does it come from their Catholicism, or does it come from their kind of societal? You know, I mean, so I think the first thing is when your kid comes out to you, then you have to acknowledge that your kid has sex of some kind, any kind ever, mm-hmm. and I think that's always weird for any parent and then especially the societal attitude toward homosexuality which you know even so i came out like 10 12 years ago and in that span it was such a different thing to say that you were gay because there were still no like representations of happy adult couples or marriage wasn't a thing that was legal yet at all people weren't really talking about the possibility of kids so i think my parents were really um they were worried that I was ru- choosing to ruin my life. Something that we talked about a lot. Um, that, and, that one always just baffles me. Well, but I mean, a part of me, because I also grew up, you know, like drinking the water where they were living at the time. I understand why you would think that. I mean, um, why you would think that you'd be ruining your life. I think for a kid when they're coming out. What's happening for them is they're about to enter the happiest part of their life because now they finally make sense to themselves. And for a parent, you don't you never lived any of the horror that is not knowing why you are so weird. And so you just think your kid is feeling fine the whole time. Then they come out and that's when the terror starts. They think it's turning for the worse and the kid knows it's turning for the better. Exactly. So it's the it's the exact opposite experience. I think that parents interpret for the kid that's coming out. It's the exact opposite experience. That's a, such a great way to put it. That's such a great way to put it. I'd never thought about it that way. Um, what's it like having that secret inside you? How many years did you have it inside you before? So, I mean, I also... So, because I had no models for this being a thing, I just thought that everybody felt the way that I felt. Like, I thought that all... Because I had really close female friends in high school or even in grade school. Um but then I also dated men and I just thought that everybody and also the funny thing is because we teach women that their sexuality is so much more fluid than men and I don't even know if I actually believe that I believe that as part of a construction that we're putting on women oh you guys can be fine with whatever so I really thought that everybody was fine with whatever you know what I mean mm-hmm. like I like because Cosmo is basically just writing articles where it's like you know, ways to like jerk off your guy. Also, if you want to have sleepovers with your best friend, here's like a man. Like it's not, there's no clarity in how you're really supposed to feel. Um, or what is, what you're truly feeling, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, so I just thought that everybody like was super grossed out when their boyfriends were like kissing them and <laughs> just <laughs> wanted their boyfriends to go home immediately. And that's how we all felt. And then at the same time, I was drawn to, um, like I remember watching Buffy, the vampire slayer, because there was a character on there, Willow, who's like a gay character. And I remember my high school boyfriend being like, why do you like this show so much? Like, I remember I was trying to wear my hair, like her hair and stuff. I was just like, I don't know. She's just great. She's just rad. I think she's just like a really funny person. And did you know that that was why you were attracted to her then? I had no idea. I mean, it was so confusing looking back on it. So I I kissed a woman for the first time when I was a sophomore in college and that moment was i i describe it to people as like that moment in um 
um, where like the whole t- oh signs. There's like, did you ever see signs? I don't uh-huh. know. It's like there's like there's like aliens coming. The whole you're trying to watch the movie in rever- or like the movie Memento, where it's like he has tattoos, but he doesn't understand what's going on. And then at the end, there's like a an M Night Shyamalan like twist, and they solve all the. Right. That was what it felt like. Where I was, I felt like I was getting all these clues my entire life, and then I was like 20, and then I was suddenly realized, oh, oh. <laughs> you're totally not. You're not you're not heterosexual if you have all of these songs that make you think of your best female friend and no songs that make you think of your boyfriend and you're not heterosexual if you're you think your boyfriend is like really aesthetically interesting but you also are an outspoken advocate of abstinence because you don't really care about sleeping with him because <laughs> I was in high school. How like, convenient. I know, I know. Yeah. And I was never like judgy about it, but I just remember I would always be like, we're waiting, which is so funny <laughs> to me now. I'm so sorry to all those poor girls. You, that I, But you probably spared yourself a lot of really uncomfortable moments where you wouldn't be true to yourself. Yeah, I mean, and I did. I actually didn't end up waiting. I did have sex with men, and it was... I mean, it wasn't... I guess at a certain level... Like, human contact feels good. Yeah. So there was that element to it. But then the first time I was with a woman, I understood what the difference is. The the passion on top of the friction. Like, yeah, like, it's probably what it's like to kiss somebody on screen for a TV show versus kiss the person that you're choosing to sleep with that night. Right. And, 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 you know, people that have been uh, sexually violated, I say all the time on the the podcast, their bodies often respond and they think that that meant that they wanted it, which is not the case at all. Even in the worst of worst situations, people can still experience physical pleasure while their soul is screaming out, this is not right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I and I, I do stand by that. Also, because I think that's another thing that people are get really confused about, about lesbians specifically, because so many lesbians do have experience with men. Because again, so much more is allowed that when you're a little kid, nobody really yells at you what you are the same with the same frequency that that happens to gay men. And, and and who is not going to tr- give it a shot? Right, exactly. You give it a shot, you try it out, and I think that for some people that's confusing. Like, well, if you can, you know, or people will think that I don't understand if men are attractive at all, which is also really hilarious. So, like, right. no, I like, I mean, I'm a human being. I understand that men are attractive. It's more so I just think about who I would want um, to sleep next to. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily like who in a moment of looking at them from across the room I would want to sleep with. Um, I think there's a really big difference there. Uh, we get so many people who fill the survey out who's um, who can only orgasm. They'd identify as straight, but they can only orgasm thinking about somebody of their their same sex. And they have no desire to be in an intimate relationship. You know, So I think there's all kinds of varieties of you know what turns you on aesthetically what turns you on emotionally absolutely and and people should give themselves a, a break on trying to force it into different things and just go hey man i'm beautiful i'm unique what makes me come makes me come and fuck anybody that doesn't get it as long as i'm not hurting anybody else or lying to somebody who's who's close to me um 
you know, let's. Yes. And if we could be more open about that, I mean, this is I think one of the reasons that you initially contacted me was that I had recently written something about how I really prefer to watch gay male porn mm-hmm. than like anything else. If I'm ever watching porn, that is what I'm watching, because to me, that looks a lot more like my sex life. And I think it is because um, for some reason, the way that it is generally shot Gay male porn is like there might be some dominance going on, but there's also there's often the dudes are like a similar size to one another or they um, actually have erections. So you can at least tell yourself in your mind that maybe they're enjoying themselves. Right. You know, like I I know that sounds nuts, but I don't think it sounds nuts. It makes perfect sense because I think for a lot of people feeling aroused is that you want to know that the other people are enjoying themselves. I've heard women say that they don't like dick pics, but what they do enjoy is a picture of an erection in the context of that man being turned down by the woman he's with, and that they find erotic. Yeah, that's really interesting. Wow, that's actually really interesting. Yeah, I think that's I think that's 100% true, and so often... Um, because I'm a woman, what is happening in porn to women or with women, I know, like, wouldn't really be pleasurable for most women, uh, because men are generally the creators of porn. And so a lot of times we're watching something that a man thinks another man wants to watch. And it's and it's like, I don't know, like, why is that even in there? It's just I have to turn right off. And it's... Uh, super grosses me out so can you can you be more specific about what the vibe is of it is it is it that there is well i don't i don't want sure i'll tell you no i can i can uh yeah i can give you the vibe i think that it's the um amount of participation that they that that person seems to be having in their own body in that moment which again i think kind of goes back to the erection thing like yeah, you can take a pill and kind of fake that, but there's also like a physical representation that it's working for you. And a lot of these women that are like, if they're touching themselves in a way that is like, just like, I don't know, there's a lot of like weird slapping that happens and things that like her face is, first of all, not seeming really into it. And then also her body is clearly doing something that must not be awesome for her (laughs) i mean so i'm always wondering like about the direction that she's getting from over there and i wish that she was getting direction from inside of herself i i feel like uh, a lot of the porn that that i've seen is kind of the equivalent of the 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 stripper pole dancing which i've never found attractive it has always felt like this is her idea of what sexy is but She's not. She may enjoy the feeling that she's turning other people on, but it is. It has never been sexy to me. It has always felt like bad gymnastics. Yeah, and like you know, the 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 sexiest I've ever seen, you know, pornography or being in a strip club has been where the, there's a subtlety to it, and there's it's the 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 look on her face and what's in her eyes and and. She doesn't have to do much at all. It's just it's about her body language and and the way her eyes move. I was also going to say, you know what else kind of can make that more effective for me is that you actually get to see the transaction that's happening. 
And so, like, you get to see that somebody's paying that person to do what they're doing. Right. And so, at some level, that also kind of adds a, a participation that you get to see from that. Because, like, okay, she uh, is doing something, and I'm hoping that she's safe. You know, like, that's something that I'm going to always look for. I've only ever been to strip clubs in Portland, and there's, like, a very safe and a comfortable aesthetic going on there that I really that kind of takes care of some of the problems that I might have if I walked in and I was like please somebody get a van we need to get all these women out of here I would imagine a lot different than what you would feel in Tampa (laughs) yes exactly so these women have made a choice and then they're also um they're also getting money so fine like I'm fine with that they know they have a job they're doing their job and it's immediately rewarding for them but something like a video clip on the internet like I have no idea what happened to that woman before she was right there. And then if that, if the actual thing that I'm watching is also something that like seems dangerous or seems like it wouldn't be sexy to her or pleasurable in any way. It, it almost feels to me like when you see bad comedy that's really loud but isn't saying anything, that's what bad porn feels like <laughs> yeah. to me, where it's just like a lot of energy being expended, <laughs> but there's no kind of authenticity to it. And, you know, the times that I've been in a strip club, I don't, I, I don't go to strip clubs anymore, but when I w- used to go to strip clubs, I would always be aware that this person would rather be someplace else yeah. making money. But given that, there could still be a certain amount of enjoyment that she's doing her job well and that she's proud of her body and that she's proud that people find her attractive and that what she does, she she does well. And, and that's as, the most that I could ever kind of say, okay, this is as real as your fantasy-ridden head can yeah. can get. No, I completely agree with you. It's that overt... Yeah, that's her job. She's at work. She's doing a good job, and therefore she gets rewarded. I mean, that's and I. It is so funny that you brought up the bad comedy thing because you're right. Bad porn, uh, bad comedy, never knows when to stop. And it's hard Just to keeps sit going. Through. Tries to find that that button that works. Uh, so, and, and it's like bad improv too, where it's just it's desperate. <laughs> There's a desperation yes. to it that is really, it's like a train wreck that, that actually winds up making me sad. That's such a good word for it because especially since the reason I'm talking about women with this is because there's another thing happening, which is that men in life are not as desperate as women are in terms of their safety, you know? And so watching a guy... Get fucked is really different than watching a girl get fucked, even if you know that that guy uh, may or may not be gay. He may or may not be having the time of his life. Like when he leaves the studio, then he still gets to be a guy mm-hmm. and maybe not worry about alleys so much. Um, when right. that woman has to leave the studio and she has to have had whatever happened to her in there, and then she also still has to be a gal that's just trying to navigate the world. Um, with the inherent like unsafe feelings that you have as a woman. I think the mistake a lot of men make and what I a mistake I made for much of my life is that you know men are so genital focused and I think they assume that women must be to a certain degree as well and they think how can a lesbian be turned on by an erection and then not want it outside of that situation. Because right. to men, they can't imagine that. I know. I mean, I get that. And I, so that's why I'm saying I think it really is about power dynamics and about 
the fact that those men I'm watching two people that are powerful in some way that are interacting with each other and that's not necessarily always present with women and then still because it's a human body it is pretty and interesting and then on top of that if you are a lesbian you are into women but you also have grown up in a super duper straight world so you still are invited to like sexualize a penis i mean it's not like if you're a lesbian you've never nobody's ever told you before like hey have you thought about looking at men like you've spent your whole life kind of living in between two worlds one of them being the world that you associate yourself with and then the other one being the world that you're dropped into and so i also think there's an element to that there which is that you know like i mean just the idea that we that gay people still talk about things like tops and bottoms or doms and subs or like who's the man is something that still comes up for Mm -hmm. people and that's because that's the majority of the world we live in it's like all the tv all the pictures all the art it's like everything we've ever seen so of course that's there the first time I saw, I don't remember if it was a clip or it was just a picture, but it was of a she-male. And I got a feeling inside of me that was so <laughs> uncomfortable. And I'm okay with it now. Um, and I don't think I've ever even masturbated to it, but it made me so insecure. Because Do you know why? I, I, I well because I thought that must mean that a part of me is gay, and yeah. it took reading something or hearing somebody say that a lot of straight men are turned on by shemales, and but I remember thinking to myself, uh, I could blow that that woman, or I don't know what the yeah. what the pronoun would be for that, and I had never, I don't know if I could. But the thought of it was erotic to me, and I had never felt that way about a penis before. That is so interesting. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard Dan Savage speak on that point. Have you ever heard Mm-mm, him speak on no. it? No. So Dan Savage, sex advice columnist, he his um, overarching view on that is that gay men are never attracted to shemales, that like, that is actually only for straight men that want to also encounter a penis because – Gay men are not like don't want to sleep with a woman. So like the whole rest of what that person is presenting to the world is a woman and then just with a penis, which is something, as I said, like we've all been eroticizing our entire lives. I mean, we also kind of, you know, we're also sexy with ourselves sometimes like we have appreciation of our own bodies. And so it's uh, just a moment for like attaching to something that is well, attaching, but Mm -hmm. connecting with something that is yourself and the other thing that you might be into and i think most gay men are actually not super into that i think it actually means you're straight and um but i also know that straight men really worry because i hear it a lot in comedy um you know that straight men really worry about as if there's like a tally right that if these things then you're gay you're less of a man. Each one takes away from your yes. your masculinity. <laughs> yes. And the, the older I get, the more I feel like, no, the more you can be honest about what you think and feel, that adds points to your manhood. I absolutely think so. I have to say, though, the, the part that I think would keep me from ever wanting to, and this is assuming that I wasn't married, the part that would keep me from wanting to put that in my mouth is the scrotum. 
I just find scrotums. <laughs> Me, I love scrotums. No, I'm just kidding. Gross. They're the worst. It it is the worst. I I know it provides a function, but it it is just the saddest looking body part ever, ever. And I always, it's like if if there could be a body without a, without a scrotum, I might even be gay if there could be a body without a scrotum. But anyway. Um, do you want to talk about when you came out? Do you want to back up before that? Was there was there stuff? I guess we could back up a little bit also because, okay, so, yeah, I was like a little gay kid in a weird place to be that. Not that there's like a super comfortable place. We're still in a vast minority. And I also, um, I had crossed eyes for a lot of my childhood and I had to wear an eye patch for eight years when I was oh. a kid. Oh. Which I say just because, I mean, you know this. 24 hours a day? No, like, okay, so first 24 hours a day, and then it would taper off because I was strengthening my eye muscles. So, like, when I was a little kid, in pictures you can kind of see that they're, like, drifting, mm. but it happened overnight that they just, like, bang, crossed. I was two, and I had to have surgery, and then I had to wear special glasses, and then I had to patch um and at first it was like a lot and then it was during school and then it was just after school and then um eventually not at all but i still would like have crossing eyes sometimes if i was super tired like Mm -hmm. i would go to school dances with like completely crossed in eyes um and then i had to have a second surgery when i was in my 20s as well to correct the same problem and actually stinky but it is also coming back now. I'm so bummed about it because I was like feeling like such a reprieve. The second surgery had worked, but it's um it's just like a a weakness that I'll have in my eyes for my whole life. And the reason I bring this up is because I also think it's really relevant to being a stand-up comic, which is that you know you always know if somebody's a comic that they had like like what was your thing? You know what I mean? There's like. You had a what thing. What was the torpedo that sank your yeah. boat? <laughs> you had a thing. I don't know what it is, but it was a thing. Yeah. And um, I really think that. So not only was I a little bit awkward about in terms of I'm just like wearing weird clothes because I just didn't know how to dress or how my hair should be. You know, because when you're gay, you shouldn't you shouldn't be wearing dresses all the time unless that's the kind of gay you want to be. But you shouldn't have to be, and so it just looks bizarre on you. You look like a. I don't know, like an extra from Peter Pan or something, or maybe Peter Pan himself. I had like a bowl cut. It was insane. It was bad. It was bad news. Um, but then also, I think the thing about having an eye patch is you really learn how to cut people off at the pass when they when you have like a very physical thing going on with you. Nobody can ever make fun of you if you are hilarious first. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's something a lot of comics develop, like that thing that. That um, distraction device where it's like, yeah, there's crazy, nut, there's stuff going on on my face, but have you noticed how hilarious this is? You know, yeah. that kind of diversion tactic. Um, Did your family consider you funny? Yes. Yeah. That must have felt good. It did. Did your family consider you funny when you were a kid? They did. My brother, not so much. Um, I don't know if he was annoyed by me, um, but my parents... My parents did, and that was always a big icebreaker for me because there was so much tension between them. Are you older or younger? Younger. Yeah, so my older sister 
I don't I don't know what the dynamic was between you guys. My older sister was like very um a little bit shy and like very cute and very feminine. She was a ballerina. And so I think especially because of what was going on with my sexuality, like following that, we're really we're just we're three years apart, but we're like we were raised really closely. It's like um, a Todd Solondz movie. So it was like I had to be you know what I mean? Like I <clears throat> I knew I couldn't be that like she was the, the exact pinnacle of that you know a ballerina <laughs> like in the exact pinnacle like there's a christmas video that i found a couple years ago that is the two of us getting presents sitting side by side and she gets um like elbow length she is 10 and i am seven and she gets elbow length gloves and like <laughs> like children's like makeup and a tiara and i got a black ken because I collected Kens, and it was the one I didn't have yet. So she, so she, I know, I know. It's so good. If you saw that in the movie, you would it's be. So that's a bit good. much. Yeah, no, it's so good. And I'm wearing like a long, like she's, like she just has like really long skinny legs, and I'm wearing like an oversized T-shirt that somehow is super tight in my butt cheeks, like because I. It's so amazing because she's like, oh my god, elbow length gloves! I can't even believe it. How kind! And then I just go like, black cat, like literally like the loudest voice you've ever heard come out of a seven year old, and I'm dancing around, and then I turn around and like my T-shirt is tight in my butt, you know, like. Just the worst, like just a kind of like chubby in the bowl cut. I have glasses, wearing an eye patch. I have a tight T-shirt in my butt. I'm getting Kens. Shit was a little bit rough. <laughs> it's so fantastic. Yeah. Of all the tableaus I've had painted for me <laughs> in doing this show, that is among the best. I think my my other favorite tableau was when Dave Holmes came out to his mom she couldn't accept it and one day she calls him and she doesn't even say hello it's mom she just says what about a masculine female (laughs) (laughs) oh my god but yes that i've gotten some of those calls uh didn't sound exactly like that but similar similar ideas um Yeah. Holy shit. That is gorgeous. And then my little sister is very artsy. Um, and Three like, kids? Yeah, three kids. Three girls. And then my little sister is seven years younger than me and ten years younger than my older sister. So there's kind of like a huge gap there. So my older sister and I were kind of raised like twins, but the, I mean, the opposite sides of the coin in the most, I mean, just most black and white way possible. Um, and then my little sister was just kind of this like, she was always teeny, you know, like mm-hmm. she was always so little and just like we could carry her around and stuff. And she was very, she's like wacky and kind of on her own vibe always. Um, but a really like awesome vibe. But she was just always mm-hmm. doing her own thing, like selling various things at a, at various stands in our front yard. She was like always having businesses, like some kids mm-hmm. would have lemonade stands, yeah. but she was having like bracelet stands from bracelets she made or just like what she was just always like had to go to work. Yeah, she was a go getter. Um what was your older sister's attitude towards you, like especially when you were in high school and people knew that you were her little sister? Was she embarrassed by you? Was she protective of you? No. So the so the funny thing about all of this and all the things I'm saying is that I was never unpopular. And I don't mean that like in a <laughs> brag. I mean, it, it's 
shocking to me looking back on it, I really was rarely made fun of because I did so much of the, like, being boisterous and laughing myself. You did a lot, you did a lot of footwork. I did you a did a lot, lot of tap dancing. dancing. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing is that I'm pretty shy, actually, as a person. I'm pretty introverted, but I... I can really perform. You know, like I really like people and I really like making people happy. So that was always true. You know, like I would go home and really spend a lot of time by myself and like lock myself in rooms and not want to leave and not want to go out and hang out with people. But then if I was able to leave the house and go out, then my personality kind of switches completely and I'm... So you picked your moments. You weren't just constantly on... No, and I'm still not to this day. I mean, if you... I think most good good comedians have to have that quiet place to draw from, to observe and get philosophical. Yeah, I mean, I do too. I also, I don't know how people do it the other... I mean, I, you, I guess that's the thing about being an extrovert versus being an introvert, but I just get so exhausted, and I have to take time in my own brain to like slow my body and my mind down, because mm-hmm. otherwise I'll, I'll like, go so fast that I um, explode. So... Anyway, this is all to say that I was I always just was really well liked because of the performance aspect. And so And you have a natural likability too. You know, I wouldn't oh. say that it's all Yeah, I mean I'm honest and I care about people. So I mean it and and uh I always was, you know, like I never was like trying to I mean, I don't know. It takes like a special kind of asshole to make fun of the kid with the crossed eyes who's like, Guys, I've crossed eyes and it's pretty hard. You know, because I was just always pretty honest about it and pretty, like, sad, you know. Do you think your generation, I mean, this may be a hard question for you to answer because you weren't a part of my generation, but do you think your generation's sensitivity towards people with differences was a little greater than ours because of more attention in media uh, about it with, you know, talk shows like Oprah and, and, you know, more after school specials or whatever whatever it was MTV it just seems like um i'm always shocked like when i when i hear about like a kid that came out in high school and had like no problem where like people were supportive and they were elected you know prom king yes and no i mean i do think that there i do think there's improvement and i do think that i can't believe how different people's narratives are about their lives now coming out than even just 10 years ago as i said um i mean that's it's it it is so far apart that it blows my mind it is so far apart that how controversial it was i came out at a college where they refused to have a non-discrimination policy about sexual orientation it wasn't just that there wasn't one they refused to have one so the university that i came out at could have kicked me out in which one did you go boston college okay and it was something that they were fighting. They were fighting with the students about this while I was coming out. But there was there were like 10 people that were out or eight or something. And it's like a 4,000 or 8,000 person student body. I mean, the percentages are really small. And yeah, they could they wanted to reserve their right to kick kids off campus. Is BC a Catholic university? Yeah, it's Jesuit. Okay. But I mean, I think they've changed that now. I think Jesuits are a little more progressive, too, than the other Catholics. They tend to be a little more philosophical and kind of open-minded in terms of, you know, um, 
Maybe I'm wrong, but that's... Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. You're right about a lot of social issues. It's weird because I went to a school that was very known for its social activism, but about things kind of outside of the student body. I mean, there were also... I was in Boston during 9-11, and um, the airplanes had left from Logan Airport, which is in Boston, that had crashed into the towers. And so I also remember that another thing that was happening on campus was that, like, the very few Muslim students that we had were getting stopped by campus police, things like that. So it's the same university that would send kids to, like, I went to Jamaica, to to inner city Kingston, to, like, pray with people and, like, build a house for them and, like, honestly touch lepers. Like, really, that is a thing that they were, they had programs like that. So, but it was, but then bringing it back home, the pain that their own student body was facing at the time. Like, a Muslim kid who is just getting, you know, stopped, like, at the dining hall or something with no, with zero reasons, you know, or, like, saying that you won't protect your gay students. You know, just, I think it was a... I mean, I actually think that way about the Catholic Church in general, that it's, yeah. sometimes it's it's so about the ideas and it's not about the actual people that yeah. are really there in front of you. And that's usually what changes somebody is they experience a person and yeah. their and their life and their attitude changes about that thing because they're like, oh, yeah, these ideas actually affect a human being that yes. I love. And so when you encounter somebody who knows people <clears throat> and it doesn't affect them, then that always makes me wonder what is wrong with that person. Yeah. And that is what what I encountered at that school was that, you know, I was like a 20-year-old kid, super confused and having a hard time. And I had some professors that were very uh, supportive. And I also had, you know, like some very clear messages from the administration that who I was was wrong. And I just, I mean, I can't, those are, you know, 50-year-old men, like looking at a confused alone 20 year old girl and saying like you are going to hell you know i mean that's i don't know how the amount of cruelty there is actually pretty substantial i think you know there's this certain current running through a lot of catholic people and i don't know if it's if if it's their buried rage at accepting a tradition that they don't really like but they're afraid to question but there is a meanness to certain catholics that is almost unparalleled and i'm sure it you know because i haven't experienced you know other communities like baptists and stuff like that that are also can be super repressed but some of the meanest people that that i've ever encountered are people that I meet when I go back home and they are still churchgoers and, you know, they, they're they just so racist and they're so just mean. And I, I mean, for me, it actually goes up to the the people that are in power in the Catholic Church too, not just the people, because you're right, they're, you know, talking to someone face-to-face is very intense, but I think that my biggest issue with that organization is that they could do so much good. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of churches that don't have the history and the power and the potency and the social currency that the Catholic Church has. The Pope is the Pope. You know, like, an evang- there's, you know, if there's an evangelical Christian community, they don't have the Pope's picture on 
the sides of buildings in Rome and then also the sides of buildings in like Buenos Aires and you know just all over the they have so much money he could they have put so out so much land he could put out a rap album and it would top it would come out as number one on the Billboard charts <laughs> he could do anything no matter how it bad would it would come was. out on the top of anything um, so I guess that's what really bothers me about it is that there are, it's it's almost like you know it's that with it's the Spider Man if with great power comes great responsibility like it's one of those traditions that really is still respected mm. generally by the media and by people's vague familiarity with it and then to just squander that i i can't understand it and I, and i know many catholics who are really good christians who walk the walk and don't judge other people and are wonderful Certainly. wonderful people um talk about your experience in in Jamaica that sounds really interesting. What was that like? What were you thinking and feeling as you were doing that? Give me some snapshots. Yeah. In Jamaica we went to an orphanage for HIV positive kids because their medical system there doesn't necessarily support like long-term care. So uh kids who are HIV positive sometimes fall out of um the system. Like they mm-hmm. can't they can't stay in their homes, so they would be like at this localized facility um or there's there are leper colonies which is leprosy is actually treated it's curable so it's just a lack of the right medicines getting there um and the leper colonies are run by nuns um the same order as mother Teresa, actually and going there and seeing all that stuff i'm i mean i feel really lucky that i was able to see all the, you know, just a larger picture of the things that are going on in our world. But it's also a pretty intense for me to think back on that because I was 20. I didn't have really great skills to offer these people. I mean, I had like my concern and a, an open heart. But what I really wish that I had done um, was use that money that I used to go down there. And instead, um, if we had hired or paid for uh, somebody who knows how to build like a great sewer system or uh, doctors, people like that to go down there. So it's a... Did you did you make the mistake of asking the leper if they prefer a high five or a fist bump? <laughs> I was, I was, uh, you know, what is, have you ever seen a, this is so, I can't believe I'm, have you ever seen a face without a nose? I have. That's a weird thing, isn't it? I've seen it a couple times here too, there's, but... There's a guy that... Um, would uh, panhandle outside of Pete's Coffee in Studio City, and he—I think he was a burn victim as well—and he didn't—he didn't have a nose, and uh, it's—it's pretty intense. Because I, it, there's just so those little things in the human face that you don't even realize how much that shapes how we interpret everything else. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that is <clears throat> something I did during that time in my life, and I hope that sometime when I'm more financially stable in the future that I could do something that would be open-hearted in that way, but also a little bit more responsible and not just like, hey, here's a bunch of kids and it's spring break and they're not going to Mexico. They're going to your country to help you and they're white people. You know, there's but, a lot of stuff going on. But isn't that kind of par for the course for, uh, you know, uh, an excited 20-year-old kid that has limited world experience that that's, I yeah. mean, you know. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think I went down there, or I don't think I went anywhere super arrogantly either. Like, I wasn't like, hey, guys, now you're fixed. I love, by the way, I'm here. That, that you went down to build houses in Jamaica and interact with lepers 
and you're finding fault with some of that. <laughs> that takes a special time. <laughs> well, it feels very selfish to me. It really does. It feels very selfish. That is where I met my first girlfriend. How the fuck Though. is that selfish? Again, like I'm saying, it, it feels like tourism. It feels like tourism I somebody's see. life who actually just has to live that life. Like, for instance, one day um, I had a little bit of extra money in my pocket. Uh, $2 or something like that. And there was a, and we were helping uh, this gentleman and his daughter who own like a sandal store where they would make sandals, leather, leather sandals by hand. And there was a, there were little kids that were helping us paint like a mural so that the store could um, look nicer. We had like mm-hmm. refinished a wall for them and then we were painting it. And um, a dude walked by who was selling like plums or something like that. And I said, like, oh, you know, I'll, like, I'll take a bunch of those. I'll take, like, you know, how many how many can this buy? I'll just take that number. And the woman whose dad it was who owned the store, like, because I, I had these plums, and then I, like, turned around to offer them to the kids who were helping us. And she pulled me aside, and she said, like, please don't do that ever again because I can't afford to buy plums for these kids. And when you come here and do that, then you – give them the message that like some white person from America is going to come here and save them that they can ask for a handout and that they should ask for a handout and also that their community can't provide for them what they need and so I uh, deferred to her on that because I I was like really embarrassed and I actually agreed with her you know that it's probably very intense to live your life there and then have somebody come in and just be like oh Oh, you guys need fruit? <laughs> oh, well, I've got all this money, so <laughs> I don't even care, you know. Um, yeah, there was a moment like that. It, seem, it seems like the, like the last thing that people have that they cling to is their dignity. As they should, right? I mean, thank God. Thank God she said that. That's a great spirit. That's a great amount of her. I'm glad. I'm glad that that's what she has to say, that she's not saying like, I'll do whatever you need and you should do whatever you want. You know, that she's saying, like, there have to be boundaries because you don't have to stay here and this is not your community and I don't want you to be the one that fixes it. You're half my age and you don't live here. There's a great book written by a guy who's in the title of the book and his name escapes me, but it's about he decided to travel the length of Africa over land, not taking any, any flights. And he had been there in the 60s, and he was comparing how it was different now than it was in the 60s. And he was actually against aid, um, saying that it had made people complacent. And and he showed all these examples where um, people had kind of lost the motivation, the entrepreneurial spirit, which I'm sure is incredibly difficult in an impoverished third world country. But he he really came out of there. I think he went in there feeling pro aid but he came out of there um thinking no this is ultimately something that is really kind of sapping the integrity and and spirit yeah i think it's very complicated right because there's a bunch of different levels that you can help you know you can send money that then who knows where that goes or you can physically be there and hand out money and then that's such a short term solution like mosquito netting for malaria there's no question that's an awesome thing you know medicine for kids right that's clearly awesome but i think like financial um assistance to adults in the village um, yeah. I think I think that was kind of his his point 
Sure, I can understand that. I mean, but it's at the same time, how you it's you can't look at that and be like, no, I shouldn't help. So it's just like such a complicated. It's so complicated, complicated here. It's complicated in Los Angeles when you walk down the street, and there is homelessness here that I am not used to seeing because in Chicago, I think because of the weather changes, uh, the homeless people have to like take some sort of shelter at some mm-hmm. point. Like they can't stay out all winter long because it, they'd just be too exposed to the elements. But there are people who live here on the street year round with no coverage, like no shelter, nothing, and. Um, then I just have to like go to my house with my groceries walking past that person. I don't know how we're supposed to deal with these things. That got so serious, but yeah. it's I'm really affected I'm, by that. I'm, I'm, moving I'm, here. I'm struck by what, and maybe I'm reading you wrong, but I'm struck by what a predominant emotion guilt is in in oh, you. Wow, is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, maybe. I mean. I mean, clear, I never thought about clearly it. you're you're somebody who's very very sensitive and considers others, but it almost I almost get the feeling like you have a hard time being okay with yourself navigating the world because there are other people suffering as if they have to be mutually exclusive. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think that's. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe that's that's right. I guess I never thought of it like that, but. And I get it. It makes sense to me saying that. I mean, it's also kind of what I was talking about earlier. You know, you grow up in a family where, like, it's sink or swim for everybody. It's really hard to lose that perspective for the rest of your life and for everybody else that you meet. What do you mean when you you say a sink or swim for everybody? Well, I was always taught that you do not leave your sisters behind. That was, like, what my dad – I mean, literally – Every night and probably every day for our entire lives. Like, still, he'll be like, don't, you know, don't leave your sisters behind. And it's, I mean, I don't know what he's talking about because they're both doing exceptionally well. Like, my one of my one sister works for the city of Chicago in this really high-profile arts job. My other little sister is um, about to move to Argentina. She's about to move to Buenos Aires. They're doing really well. Like, they're really in charge of themselves. And we're all really successful as, like, we're, like, really put together and uh, generally on time and in good relationships and stuff. But I don't know what he's afraid of. Whatever that is, that's pr- definitely what I'm afraid of, too. Yeah. What What are... Um should we go into uh, some some fears and in loves or well let's hold let's hold off on on those for a while because there's other parts of your life that I I want to know about. Tell me about uh, when you met your first girlfriend. What was what was that like? You said it happened in Jamaica? It did. Yeah, we were on this trip together and she was just another gal that went to BC and we had to do like training for our trips where we would like read up about the culture for a bunch of months before we would go down there so that so as to not um put ourselves in danger or buy a offend bag of, anybody. Buy a bag of plums. Yeah, buy like a bunch of plums. A plums. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, so by the time we got to Jamaica, we had spent like some time together and um, she was going through a really hard time with her family, which I really like to hang out with anybody who's going through a hard time. I don't know yeah. what that is when I like love specifically w- women who are complicated because I think maybe I'm... Are you a fixer? I'm a little bit of a fixer, yeah. Yes. Were either of your parents uh, drinkers or addictive in any any way? No. Okay. No. Um, 
that's just a common thing that you find in people that are that are fixers like a one parent has something that they are obsessive about or can't control and yeah you just kind of see that a lot, so I was just curious. But go well, ahead. I mean, I think it is honestly probably part of being the middle child of a very intense family where there was a lot going on between. And actually, you know what? I wouldn't say that there were not that there was not um, addictions going on. I just maybe didn't think about it this way. Uh, food was a really hard problem in my family growing up, and still is. So I think part of that might also be there. A lot of fights about like. What was the right thing to eat and how much was the right thing to eat? So that does sound like an addiction, doesn't mm-hmm. it, now that I say it? Um, yeah, and then... And, and I'm not trying to pathologize your your situation. It's no, just a thought that popped into my yeah, head. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't... I, it doesn't um, I, don't, I don't feel that way at all. I guess I just have always thought that... This is going to sound so funny, but I always thought that of myself as like the... I'm really like the son in my family, so I really have always had to like keep it together for everybody. Interesting. Yeah. Wow, I might honestly cry right now, which I really hope I don't. But it's okay. We like that. <laughs> we like that on the program. Yeah. Is that good? I'm so uncomfortable. I called it program right now. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be. What are you, what are you feeling right emotional. now? Because you're. What's What's bringing that up? I don't even know. I think just. Um, I honestly think that might be like the first time I've ever thought about it like that. You were here, we were in this office, and it was above a 7-Eleven. So, I think it's just that. Isn't it cool when when you have little moments like that where you... And sometimes it's painful, and sometimes it's kind of... You f- almost feel stupid for having not seen that before, yeah. but I don't know. There's almost like a there's like a relief in it for me sometimes when I get more clarity on who I am and where I've been and how I feel about it. Can can, can you talk yeah. about can you talk about? Yeah. Um what that little moment that you just had or are having what it what it feels like or i think just i feel um actually maybe angry which is weird um cuz i didn't expect to feel angry but i think i feel A little bit mad about just like having to be tough, I think, and like, uh, I think it's a combination of having somebody tell me having you tell me, but having somebody tell me that, like, it sounds like I carry a lot of guilt, and then coupling that with, um, just actually feeling 
yeah, just feeling angry about that. Do you feel like... Well, let me ask you, is is the anger directed outside of yourself, towards yourself, both? Um... At the universe? <laughs> yeah, I think maybe actually just... Honestly, I think maybe at um, my family. Because the thing is, is like, when people are really nice to you, it's really hard to feel angry with them. Do you know what I mean on this? <laughs> <laughs> I do. Yeah. I do. And when you sense that there's a part of them that's broken or needs help or they can't see and you feel like you know what can help it, you tell yourself as a little kid that it would be selfish of you to not do all you can, but you forget that you're a kid and they're the parent, and it's their job to think of your needs and not your job to think of their needs. Certainly not when you're a child and they're an adult. But kids don't know that. Kids often step up and become that adult before they should be an adult, and it takes a part of their innocence away. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So, <laughs> and I and I relate it. It when I got in touch with that anger, it was fucking rage. It was fucking rage. When did that happen for you? In my twenties, first time I went to therapy. Yeah, I mean, I have have had some therapy myself, and um, I don't think I felt angry before. Literally before today, though, I think I felt more like really um smashed like really held down i was in a would suffocated be a yeah yes yeah i was in like a very serious relationship for a long time that was pretty unhealthy because we had set up i had set up like one of those beautiful fixing dynamics (laughs) in a situation that like you had a lot of work to do uh, i had a lot of work to do and then also i was like pretty sure i had no work to do in myself you know, how we like can set that up for ourselves. At least I can. I'm really good at sometimes finding, like if I'm going through a hard time, then I find something that's really intense that is outside yeah. of me, and then I can think about that, and I don't have to worry about my own shit. Um, but that relationship was ending, and I felt like so terrible about it, because I felt like I had ruined like a really, I thought that it was that I was supposed to be with her, and so I thought that I had ruined something by like, needing to fix it so much not realizing that like if there's that much need and there's that much fixing and those are already your personalities on top of it like if the personalities are there and then also there really is a disparate amount of stability um that we were kind of doomed to begin with but i was you couldn't see that then though not at all no i thought it was like i thought we were supposed to be together forever and i went to therapy like not even understanding why i was upset about it i was just like my girlfriend, because she had to, she wasn't American and she had to go home because her visa ran out. And I was just so sad that she left that I 
like was sad for like for a really long time and i'm not usually um like i can spend a lot of time being quiet but i'm not usually like sad very much um yeah so i was sad for a really long time and i and i decided to seek therapy because i was just like i feel really sad and i can't tell why how dare somebody smite my rescuing superpower <laughs> i know exactly that's exactly what it is yeah i feel really sad because i didn't fix it i didn't make it all better well i would imagine on a certain level and and i i'm talking about myself as well as you because i'm a i'm a fixer is you begin especially when you fix adults it's a real high as a kid and it makes you feel really special and you don't know that it's kind of an unhealthy special so when somebody looks at that special and says nah i don't want that it's almost like it's going to the core of who you are what you take the most pride in like i care i listen i have good suggestions i empathize and somebody is just going no Yes, and I will say that the reason that I am so happy to be with my fiance is because she's the first person that because because I found that it was either that, like no, or sometimes it was like yes, <laughs> and um, I didn't even know that there was an option where somebody could say like oh thanks, not today, like where they could pick or choose times that you would help them and then they would try and pick or choose times to help you i guess what i'm speaking about is balance yeah and equity um but it was not something that i had experienced because i was going in with so much of my own specific need to to be that fixer um that more is better in terms yes. of my fixing because it means i'm a more loving person right, exactly right <laughs> yeah and also i mean for myself i am very hard on myself but i'm also in my own head and I know that I also like myself a lot. You know, I, I actually think I'm pretty cool, but I also like really am hard on myself and hate myself. But I know both of those things. And I think sometimes when you're a fixer, what you can be projecting out is a lot of the negative things about that person because you're talking about the things that need to be fixed and you're keeping the good things that you like about them inside because those mm. things don't need to be fixed. When you're like on the inside looking yeah. out, you know both things. That's a great point. But when point. you're talking about somebody else, um, you can get really stuck on that. Like, hey, you know what you could do better? <laughs> and you forget that, that then they are experiencing that not as love and caring, but as criticism and saying you're not the way you should be. And yes. then we're baffled by the fact that they wouldn't want our help. Right. I mean, that, that's also... Yeah, I think there's I think there's a lot in of that in the specific place and time and family that I grew up as well. It's very like achievement oriented mm -hmm. and very, you know, like I said, like bring your sisters along, but then also like you know, go to this school and go to and like get these grades and and not just in my immediate family, but in this like very specifically sheltered community of people. So I wonder if we should ask ourselves when we when we find ourselves trying to fix that person is say is this love or is this control? You know that I'm yes that I'm finding myself attracted 
to or compelled to try to act on. Because um, I know for a lot of years I thought that I was, quote unquote, teaching my wife, teaching a friend. And it's so arrogant in, in so many ways. And there's certainly times, I, I think, when I have been a good friend and a good husband and have been helpful, but I think there's so many times that I thought I was helping and what I was really trying to do was, was control. So are you able to ask yourself that question? I am now. As you're doing it now? I am now, but it's, it's taken a long time. And um, it was it hit my, my head into a lot of walls. And Does it feel bad physically if you have to restrain yourself from, like helping because you realize it's control no it, it it feels um freeing when i'm able to recognize it and say oh this person's on their own journey i'm not here to teach the world how to act i'm here to help when somebody wants help um if somebody asks for a suggestion you know or it's one of those rare circumstances where i feel like it's okay to say hey can i make a suggestion here um yes. but it's taken me a long time to get there and I think what had to happen for me to get to that place was I had to get in touch with all of my own flaws and all of my own fears and realize that so often I'm filtering the data of the universe through my own fears and prejudices and my own experience and that I have to accept that other people are, are different and I still catch myself doing that. And I have to not hate myself when I catch myself doing that and say, hey, I'm a work in progress. Yeah. You know? Well, I feel like I'm just a couple years into understanding that about myself because I do think that I have those tendencies very, very much so. And I'm actually, I'm just a couple years into this relationship um, that has been, that I just, you know, met a great person at a great time in my life after I had started to do like some of the mm -hmm. digging. Maybe the first like mm -hmm. excavating the first, uh, you know, eight layers of a possible 800 um so i feel much better i'm so i'm so thankful that i like did some of that work so that i could be like a little bit more able to balance myself out but i don't feel like what you're talking about about that catching yourself i don't necessarily feel that yet all the time your um, your um fiance sounds like she has a good sense of boundaries yes well See, here's what's interesting. She has a family that is very intense, just like my family is very intense. And both of us have been working through therapy um, and through just like growing up and being adults to set better boundaries. So I think both of us are a little bit more aware of it while not necessarily having it as like our base. And I actually think that's kind of nice because like she doesn't necessarily shame me for like having mm -hmm. these weird boundaries that you know because she also has weird boundaries so like we're working on it together and i'll point stuff that's... out to her too and she'll point stuff out to me so that's a lot better than i think it's, it's nice to meet somebody who understands yeah like, and recognizing what it, the thing is you know and i think recognizing it is is always the first thing that has to happen because nobody is like oh i recognize it and now i'm fixed <laughs> <laughs> you know i mean these are like pathways worn into our brain that we that we kind of need to to rewire and it takes it takes a long time it takes a really long time but i think what you describe the relationship that you have with your fiance is that's the best possible setup that you can have for two people working towards becoming more independent and also loving 
you know yes yeah i think you're i think you're right and i i i just hope i'm able to do it honestly i hope i'm able to keep i think keep... you are doing it <laughs> okay. you know yeah it sounds familiar like you like you are yeah uh we didn't finish touching on your uh, your first girlfriend and, no, and what that what that moment was like when you were finally able to be the authentic you. Were you able to be the authentic you? Well, I mean, we. It was it was a very good relationship. It was also really. I don't know that I was able to be the authentic me yet, um, just because, for part of the time that I was dating uh, that woman, I was still dating men like casually as well and trying to figure that out. I had a lot of. Um, I like initially hated you know myself right after figuring out that I wanted to be with her. It wasn't like a, an immediate relief. It was more like things were really tumultuous with my family and I didn't feel like I could come home very much um, because I had to kind of like remove that part of my life before I was able to come back sort of per request. Um, and so, I mean, it just took me years of like being kind of in limbo like having other girlfriends and uh, and then like after dating women for uh, dating I think I had already dated two women like dated I mean like been like seriously not dated like been like with like been uh, multiple year relationships and been partnered to them um, before I like really was coming out to people and I had been doing improv this whole time professionally and also in college and then I moved back to Chicago and it was like right before I had moved back to Chicago I had come out to like I just started coming out to everybody you know as opposed to just like whoever I felt like it was relevant to or something um, and then when I moved back to Chicago I started doing stand-up and I really think that part of that was because it was like a great way to be able to tell everybody all the time because I could say it every time I was on stage and it was like something to become a lot more comfortable with. And um, then it's, it's weird when you're gay, it's not something that you physically look like or something that people can necessarily always read on you. So you have to tell them, which is awkward sometimes in conversation, not because it's strange to be gay, but just because it's a weird thing to bring up your sexuality. Heterosexuals don't have to do that. So... I found stand-up, and I also started dating that woman. I was talking about that fixie relationship. Mm -hmm. But that was – she was actually very um, supportive of my being on stage and also of my being on stage and talking about being gay. And that is the first time that I felt like I was working within things that I understood. What was your family's reaction the f when they started hearing you talk about being gay on stage? It was really bad, actually. <laughs> mm. Yeah, like, I don't know. I remember this one time they brought, like, 20 friends or something to a show. Like, my parents brought 20 of their friends to a show. They're, they're, 20 of their friends you know, to I, a show. I'm not gay, and those were always the situations <laughs> that I would be the most nervous because... I was always afraid of bombing, not because I would bomb, but because then they would have to lie to me after the show. And I, I hate that and, dishonesty. Uh, and also, you know, like, uh, number one, that. And then it's like people that have known you since you're a kid. So even if, like, gay or not, 
you will talk about your life in kind of a more raw way. You might mm. curse. You might say stuff about butts. I don't know. Whatever you're doing, like, it's probably not stuff that your parents, friends assume <laughs> that they expect to hear come out of your mouth. Yes. Um, yeah, so they, t- they brought 20 friends. They were trying to be supportive. I was talking about being gay. Uh, it was at like a comedy club too, like not just like a weird bar or something, like an actual like club with like a two drink minimum and everybody was packed in and it was um, terrible. It was terrible because I actually had a joke about my dad at that time as well about his reaction to my coming out and uh, his reaction was pretty negative. So I was still working through a lot of anger with him that I now he has more than apologized and we have worked through a lot of our issues there but at the time i was like pissed and um he had not apologized yet so uh he just had to hear it in front of all his friends how his daughter was angry at him um yeah so that was awkward that was a bad night actually i was also on crutches weirdly you know like those are always the nights that you're like i like hurt my knee so of course you're like oh 20 of my parents friends are here and there's only stairs up to the stage and i'm probably gonna talk about how mad i am my dad well just definitely put me on crutches yeah that'll make the whole thing easier (laughs) you're just balancing on the crutches like leaning towards the mic because you can't hold it it was great um but i think honestly what ended up happening was that that woman that i was dating at the time she was very charming and she was really supportive of my career, like I said, my stand-up career. And she would talk to my parents who actually liked her, which was which like completely surprised me. I didn't know they could like somebody I was dating that was a woman. They actually liked her and she would speak very highly of like my skills and talents to them. And I think that they became a lot more comfortable with it because of her actually and like the amount of support that she was able to get. Do you give think me. do you think because it they realized that oh this is very similar to a heterosexual relationship and that it's about emotion and compassion and genuine love and it's just not about the degenerate sex <laughs> that we picture when we picture yes gays together and i'll add another thing uh which helped me at that time and which is also very interesting to be on the different side of now which is that that particular woman was very very feminine um and i also think that that was a really interesting entry point for my parents into uh being completely on board with who i am as a person like it's really not an issue anymore i never have conversations with them where they're like you know i mean they are really happy about my uh they like they're like super it's not an issue but it was a huge issue and i think it's really interesting that she was really the first person they knew and she was kind of this like really entry-level gay not that you can't be feminine but like i'm just saying she wore a lot of heels and a lot of eye makeup and i think that they had a chance to like not just because you're talking about kind of the demonizing like they had a chance to meet somebody who was like not very scary you know to maybe like a suburban family like she just looked very normative and possibly hetero but she was not she didn't bring her softball glove she did not bring her softball glove now the interesting thing is now that uh the woman i'm going to marry is very um masculine like 
but she's got a very pretty face, but she's like got real short hair and she wears mostly men's clothes. And my parents are, they you know, they only think she's great and they only have said nice things and welcoming things. They've never like given her a weird look or anything mm-hmm. like that. I mean, my, my grandmother um, passed away and my fiance wore like a tie to that funeral and a suit, you know, mm-hmm. but I, my, I don't think it worried my parents at all. But it was funny watching the... Like trajectory of yes. their being okay with like well, all maybe, right. Maybe she's working her way yeah. up to a man. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean that is a real thing too, you know. For for lesbian women, you know, my fiance talks about all the time about how like what she's. It is actually really different to walk around with her than mm. it has been to walk around with women that were more feminine, because people. Um, I actually I don't feel rejected by people. I just think people mm. find it more interesting. Like, wait, what's going on over there? Uh, one of my mentors in uh, in my support group, I chose. Um, she ident- She thinks of herself as a boy, and she's a lesbian, and she dresses in men's clothing. And I, I think one of the reasons I was attracted to her spiritually in the support group was. She, there was a, it was kind of like, I, you know, the male mentors that I had in my other support groups, but she had that feminine energy, that mother energy that I so deeply craved, but there was no kind of complication of sexual attraction between yeah. either of us. And as I've done work with her, it's really benefited me to hear her opinion as a woman on some of the stuff and to to let me know how a woman views yeah. some of those things and it's um it's been really great actually i think that's awesome i totally understand what you're saying because i mean when i when i have been with more feminine women i found that men would have a harder time interacting with us seriously because i think that they still thought there was a possibility <laughs> That they could be, I mean, I'm not kidding. And for me, that was never a possibility. So it, we were unmatched. You know, like the conversation from their end was like, well, maybe. And then I, yeah, I was, the conversation from my end was like, no. But we weren't having that conversation. It was all, it was all just, you know. It was flirty. Energy and all this. Well, I mean, guys were just being, yeah, like flirty, weird and inappropriate and not. The thing is, I really love, I actually really love men as friends. But it's never, I never want to sleep with any of my friends. I never, ever have that moment where I'm like, mm, maybe. Like, so if that's happening for that guy, it just makes the, the relationship just a little bit tough. It's like there's something going on that we can't meet in the middle on. I just have found it that since I have been, because I also, um, not that I'm like butch, but I like cut off half of my hair and I wear, um, Clothes that make me feel comfortable, which but which are like T-shirts and jean jackets and things like that. And then uh, am next to a woman who, you know, like I said, is like very pre- – more, maybe more androgynous than masculine, but like with like a pompadour and like a leather jacket on. And guys actually think that we're cool. Like they don't want to sleep with us. They want to like Hang. talk to us. Yeah. Which is a real relief. It feels awesome. I, I'm really excited about it actually. It's been really interesting moving here and like making a whole new circle of friends and having those people only ever see me 
with a woman that looks like that as opposed to have seen me with different types of women. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, everybody's like, oh, yeah, we're all just boys. Like, we're all just brothers. Yeah. We're all just hanging out. Who wants to come over and watch action movies? I'm like, I do. I absolutely do. Thank you for that's, finally knowing. That's awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. I feel happy about it. It's much more comfortable, actually. Is there anything else you want, you want to touch on before we do some fears and loves? No, I feel like, are you exhausted? How exhausting no. is this for you? It's not. It's actually energizing um, mm-hmm. for me because th- this is the, and I say it all the time, this is the connection uh, to human beings that I've wanted my whole life, but I didn't know how to do it. And st- it started with support groups. And I feel like this is an extension of it. This is the intimacy that I've craved uh, my my whole life. I mean, clearly, you know, when it's with somebody that I've really never sat down and talked to, it's a limited intimacy, but it still is an intimacy. And, um, no, it, 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 um, it energizes me. It it makes me feel alive and like a, a sense of meaning and purpose that was, um, unattainable to me on a certain level before, before I got sober and certainly before I started doing, doing the show. So no, put that thought to rest. I love well, I'm it. happy. To, I'm happy to hear that. I mean, for me, it's actually makes me anxious to talk about my emotions. So I am a little bit exhausted, and that's okay because uh, I knew that coming in. I knew what I was going to be doing today. Um, but it is interesting to me that that's that it's an opposite experience for you. Yeah, that's because I'm draining you. Mm-hmm. I'm a vampire. Uh, but I have <laughs> yeah, had... Yeah, I, I, I was <laughs> noticing that my arms are just kind of losing color. No, you're not draining me. We're... I don't know. Maybe I don't know what's going on, but I, I've had uh, many guests say that they had to go home and take a four-hour nap after after doing it, and and I've had that before too when I've spilled my guts uh, to people and been anxious. And the episodes where I've put up where I really kind of show my warts and talk about things that scare me and things that I'm you know have complicated feelings about. Um, I sometimes agonize about that going out yeah. for people to, to hear and know about me. But um, having done that in support groups and seen that it's only improved my life, I know it's going to be okay if I can just get through that initial fear. But, um, yeah, I get th- I get that that exhaustion. <laughs> I get it. I get Wild, it. just talking, yeah. you know? That's what we are as humans. Just talking is exhausting sometimes. Yeah. And I'm exhausting, let's be honest. Yeah, it's mostly you. It has nothing to do with me. You're annoying as hell. <laughs> let's uh let's start with some fears. Okay. Um I will be reading the fears of because I've listed like four hundred of my fears on the maybe at some point I'll go back and start doing my own fears again, but I I do the listeners uh fears. Um I'm gonna be reading the continuing the list of uh fears from from Rachel. And uh, she says, I'm afraid that I will eventually leave the career I love teaching because I need a job that makes more money. I bet a lot of teachers have that. I'm afraid that my parents will die on a night that I didn't say goodnight to them, just like in the book that I read as a child, Sarah Plain and Tall. Mm. Uh, Rachel says, I'm afraid to permanently move back to the States. I'm afraid that all of the hustle, I'm afraid that all of the hustle and bustle and expectations will simply overwhelm me. I'm afraid that I will not be able to tolerate men at some point and thus will become an actual man-hating lesbian. <laughs> Give me a heads up, would you? I'm, I'm worried about it. I'll know to avoid you. 
Uh, I'm afraid that one day I'll give in to the voices that I hear in my head and cut myself. I'm afraid that my pants will not fit and someone will take a photograph of me on stage wherein it is obvious that my pants do not fit and then they will post it on the internet and somebody will comment on it that my pants do not fit. That is body image. A thousand different kinds of awesome. (laughs) Uh, I'm afraid my life has no meaning that I am simply taking up space in our world. This is another body image one. I'm afraid that my boobs will become super weird with age and I will want to have surgery to correct it, but I will be afraid to get that surgery and also ashamed of myself for even considering it. That's a good one. That's deep. I'm afraid that I depend too much on my students to make me happy slash smile. I'm afraid that I'll not be able to control my eating habits and will consistently feel sick to my stomach from overeating like I did when I was a child. I'm afraid that there is no one in the world that will love me in a romantic way because I have both genital herpes and genital warts, even though the diseases were how I found out that a former long-term boyfriend was cheating on me. My heart goes out to her. Yeah, that's really... I'm just taking a moment with that. Yeah. I'm afraid... And I I do know that there are are people that um, have great relationships when one person has uh, herpes and are totally able to manage it and um, couples that that both have it so absolutely and that it is a manageable yeah it's a manageable medical situation and also that more of us are exposed to things than we even realize there's no shame in that yeah I had general warts in in my 20s had to get surgery laser surgery Oh, that Uh, sounds really painful The, the thing that really sucked was the first time um this guy treated i went to like an old-timey guy whose methods were like victorian and he the best way i can describe it was he took a rototiller that had dry ice on the ends of it and just drove it over my dick oh my god it was so fucking painful and it didn't work oh my god it was awful it was awful i would also say that honestly one of the things that drives me um just makes me very angry in stand-up is actually hearing people do like throwaway herpes jokes because most of statistically a bunch of people in the audience it's the same thing the same way that i feel about uh rape jokes statistically a bunch of the people in the audience are uh dealing with that and possibly people on the show with you and in the case of herpes a bunch of people probably have it and don't even know that they have it so like there's no need to shame or say like we all have herpes or in the next two years we're all going to have herpes because it's a huge the infection rate is very high and not everybody has uh not everybody manifests symptoms but you're not alone and there's nothing wrong with you if you do because many 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 people do i would like the heads up from you on both when you're going to become a man-hating lesbian <laughs> and when my herpes are going to break out i'm going to you know okay i appreciate it by herpes i want i want to be on speed dial (laughs) um your fear oh yeah uh that i will make no money doing stand-up comedy and thus will have wasted my parents investment to send me to a college just to have me fail at some dumb arts job (laughs) uh i am now going to switch to fears from a listener named nadia and she says i'm scared my i'm scared I'm scared my knee won't get better and it'll keep hurting and that I won't be able to run again or bend it all the way and will be out of shape because I won't exercise. I'm scared that my eyes will cross and stay crossed and I will lose my vision. Um, but 
what would be positive is you would always get hired to do the scene where somebody orgasms. <laughs> the other thing is, if my eyes cross <laughs> and I lose my vision, there's like, can you imagine how marketable that'll be as a comic? <laughs> Think about it. America's got talent in the bag. <laughs> Uh, Nadia says, I'm afraid I'll start binging again and gain a bunch of weight and my life would crumble. I'm afraid I'll fail my partner because I'm selfish and then end up alone. I'm afraid my boyfriend who is in recovery from sex addiction will relapse and I wouldn't know it until it's too late and I'll be hurt again. I'm afraid I will be too poor to have kids until I am too old to have kids. Um... I'm afraid I'll get fired from my job and will have to get work that would pay a lot less and will be a lot more demanding and time-consuming. I'm afraid I'll have no real intimacy in my friendships because I am too private. I'm afraid I won't be a good therapist. I'm afraid of ballet class. I'm afraid my ex-husband is not addressing girls' emotional needs. That's actually the end of my fears for the ones I wrote today. All right, let's, let's jump to the, uh, to the loves. I have, maybe I have ten of these. Okay. I'm going to be going back to Rachel and reading her loves. And she starts off with, I love taking the first sip of black coconut Kona coffee in the morning. Oh, that's awesome. I love seeing an action movie in a theater with a ton of other people, but without anyone being annoying or talking, really. Just kind of tons of people sitting around silently witnessing punching. (laughs) That needs to be more specific. (laughs) Uh, I love getting my back popped uh, slash cracked. Not she doesn't like, enjoy her back getting slashed, popped, got slashed, it, got cracked. It, got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, I love feeling important, like if someone comes up to compliment me on my stand up in front of my family. I love looking at the blackheads and other stuff that is stuck on a biore strip that I just took off of my nose. Actually, I just love popping zits, blackheads, etc. In general. Oh my god, blackheads are the best. Yeah, there's nothing like pulling something out of your body i get excess earwax and sometimes i'll do that thing where you yeah you flush it yes and oh when i get a good piece coming out of there i'm like Why it feels, just feels so like satisfying. victory it feels yeah. like victory i don't know what yes it feels like you change the oil in your car like all by yourself yeah yeah i know i i love that stuff too i love it um i also love uh chapstick i love chapstick and i love putting it on uh like the first time that you put on a new tube that's how i am um a lesbian i just really love <laughs> chapstick i didn't know that was a lesbian thing. yeah it is totally oh totally yeah mm-hmm. yeah uh i love the fact that i'm the only woman to coach high school basketball in my district oh that's great what's up rachel i love having time to go back to sleep but then getting up and starting on work anyway nice i love that feeling uh, I love telling others about my Samoan culture. I uh, loved talking with my nana while sitting on this one stool that she used to have in her apartment in her retirement home. That's sweet. Um, now I'm switching to Nadia's loves. I love finding a small tube of hand lotion in my purse and after putting it on, offering it to someone else seated next to me in a group. I love uh, teasing my older sister about bringing CDs on vacation because nobody brings CDs on vacation (laughs) anymore. And then Mm -hmm. riding around in a rental car listening to those CDs because, in fact, she was right to bring them. Uh, I love the foam on top of a coffee cup even when it's an instant. 
I love uh, seeing an accurate and full depiction of a gay person on television or in film and then not having that person die or end up with a person of the opposite sex. I would imagine that is very... Pretty rare. Rare and, and soothing. <laughs> it like, is really Okay, soothing. we're moving forward. Yeah, exactly. Um, I love the screeching sound of a clean plate. I love the screeching sound a clean plate makes after I rinse it in the sink. Um, I love this one particular Christmas walk that happens in the town next to where I grew up where there's like cider and old women wearing matching sweaters and singing Christmas carols. That's awesome. Um, I love when my kids burst into an unstoppable laughter and anything makes them laugh even harder, even showing two fingers. I don't know if I get that, the Uh, two fingers, even showing two fingers. I don't know. Yeah. Must be an inside joke. Maybe small kids. Yeah. That laugh at the hilarity of the human digit. Yeah. I love hearing my mom play House of the Rising Sun on the piano, which also is the only song she knows how to play on the piano. I love watching foreign movies and shows where actors look like real people instead of Greek Greek gods or plastic dolls. Oh, I totally relate to that. Nothing. That's why I couldn't watch Lost. I was like, oh, a a plane full of beautiful people and one fat guy crashed i never yes yes absolutely i love um having worked with kids in various capacities over the years and then being able to still be connected to those kids and hear what they're doing now oh that's sweet uh, I love warming my hands on a ceramic mug of hot coffee or tea. Oh, I love that one too. You don't have to worry about that too much in California, but no, back in the not Midwest, too much. It's true. I actually am. I'm out of loves, but I mean, like, I can make some up. Um. Well, I'm. I'm gonna do. do I'll a do a couple more. I'll do. Uh, I'll listen. Uh, I love seeing a beautifully put together woman on the street and telling her how attractive she looks. You know what I find myself doing um, is. If I see a woman like in a coffee shop that has something that's attractive about her, not a body part, but like if she has hair that is like a nice color or there's something nice about her, I I will come up to her and I'll say, I'm not hitting on you. I'm married, but I just want to let you know that I think you have beautiful hair. um, (laughs) I love that. Yeah, it's it's really nice. or, you know, I'll say compliment guys, too, on, on stuff like, oh, man, that's an awesome shirt. Or I'm not comfortable enough to compliment guys, you know, say, you've got great legs or, you know, <laughs> something like that. But um, but then I, I've never told a woman she has great legs. I feel like that's something I should probably keep to myself. Um, I love seeing alter- alternative couples on the street, biracial, same sex, or anything else out of the norm. And... Uh, We'll do this as our last one. I love arriving somewhere at the exact time I predicted I would. Oh, that is the best. I love it when it's right down, yeah, to the exact minute, and especially if it was like a half-hour drive. Right. Yeah, that's always awesome. Cameron, uh, people can find you at CameronEsposito.com, C-A-M-E-R-O-N-E-S-P-O-S-I-T-O. You nailed it. And uh, thank you so much for sharing um, your, your life and all that other good stuff with us. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for talking with me. Many thanks to Cameron. Um, I emailed her when I told her I was putting her episode up and said, you know, every once in a while I come across um, somebody, when I first meet them, I just get this vibe that I'm that person's path is supposed to cross mine. And I, I just got that feeling when I saw her doing stand-up. Um, 
I usually listen to my instinct when it tells me that. And uh, I felt that way about Lisa um, Cushell, who was became my um, co-host on Dinner in a Movie the first time I met her. Um, I just felt like I felt like we'd been friends for a long time, and um, we're still friends, still good friends. I love that feeling. So uh, many thanks to Cameron. Um, before we take it out with some surveys. I want to remind you that there's a couple of different ways to support the show if you feel so inclined. So sorry, those of you that listen to every single episode, you must be so tired of hearing this spiel. Um, the uh, You can go to the website, mentalpod.com, and you can support the show financially by making a one-time PayPal donation or the one that I love, making a recurring monthly donation for as little as five bucks a month. That also qualifies you to get in the cutting board uh, drawing, which I have whenever my depression isn't crushing my skull. Um, And um, you can also support the show uh, non-financially by um, transcribing an episode. Email me about more details about that. Be forewarned, it takes an average typist uh, a full day to transcribe an an average episode. And you can support us non-financially by going to iTunes, writing something nice, giving us a good rating, or spreading the word through social media. So any of those. Oh, also financially, you can um, shop through our Amazon uh, search portal. It's on our homepage, right-hand side, about halfway down. All right. Let's get to the surveys. This is, I'm going to just be reading some excerpts um, from some of these and don't want to startle you. Why, why did I have to preface that? Um, this is from Shame and Secrets, uh, filled out by Britta, and her deepest, darkest thoughts kill my son. Deepest, darkest secrets thinking of killing my son or others. Um, that is not that unusual, Britta. So don't beat yourself up about that unless you kill your son. Um, this is from, um, same survey filled up by a guy who calls himself Barometer. Uh, he's straight in his forties, was raised in a little bit of a dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse, never reported it. Um, deepest, darkest thoughts. I think about being sexual with male sexual organs, not to be confused with men. Um, I engaged, uh, deepest, darkest secrets. I engage in urethral play and even catheters while masturbating, um, Sexual fantasies, I would like my partner to join me in my urethral play. That's a tough word to pronounce. I feel like, uh, I feel like I'm a doctor when I say that. I got a urethral. You can't really kind of gloss over that word. It's, uh, Paul, spend more time on the pronunciation of urethral. Uh, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? I have, and she was accepting of it. She expressed concern for my safety, which I understand, but was not judgmental about it. I probably won't invite her to join me because I wouldn't expect her to be turned on by it. Our lovemaking is good as it is, so it's probably best to keep this part of my sexuality slash damage compartmentalized. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? My feelings towards myself seem to fluctuate between pride in my bravery and competence to do this weird shit to myself without serious injury to feeling completely depraved. I know that this is somehow connected with past sexual abuse, but I don't know exactly how. It's a strange activity to be turned on by. I know I'm not the only one who engages in this, but I haven't found any information about why we are compelled to do these things. Danger is a part of the turn-on as well as urethral penetration. I would very much like to know if any of your listeners have any insight into this. Thank you for that. And um, the forum is a good place sometimes to share that or if if you have insight onto that um, go ahead and uh, email me and um, 
barometer if you email me, then I can pass along any thoughts that people have. This is a happy moment filled out by Katie. And uh, she writes, when I was four years old, Nirvana's album Nevermind was released. My dad brought the CD um, and me and my three siblings and my father were listening to Smells Like Teen Spirit in a fake mosh pit where my dad would pick us up and throw us on the couch while we were dancing like maniacs. It was amazing to feel this free with my dad, who can usually be gruff and intimidating. But in this moment, he was a completely loving and fun person. Whenever I hear Smells Like Teen Spirit, I am instantly transported to that moment of happiness, and it is the greatest feeling. I love that one. I love that. As you can tell from the happy moments that I pick, I just love when I see parents being present present with their kids. This is um, from Shame and Secrets, filled out by a, a woman who calls herself Hello Space Boy. She is um, bisexual in her 40s. Um, and I just want to read an excerpt from it. She d- Deepest, darkest thoughts. Every night uh, that my husband is late, I like to fantasize that he's been killed in a car crash and that I never have to see him again. He does nothing but play on his computer all night, ignoring me and our daughter. He won't touch me, not that I want him to. He's over 100 pounds overweight. He disgusts me. I would leave him, but I have nowhere to go. I really hate him and myself for staying with him. Deepest, darkest secrets. I have keyed my husband's car. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Just someone to love me. Husband says I am unlovable. Well, I hope you go talk to somebody about that or go to counseling because that's a lot to uh, that is a lot to hold in and to try to deal with on your own. Um, same survey filled out by Sally, and uh, I just want to read her darkest secret. In high school, I claimed I had been emotionally traumatized by a local teen's death to get out of taking a test I hadn't prepared for. I said I knew the person, but really didn't. Uh, congratulations, Sally, on officially having the least dark secret in the two and a half years I've been doing the podcast. Your dark secret, Sally, wouldn't have even been my darkest secret on a given day in my teenage years. So if that's all the damage you have left in your wake, in your life, um, you should rest your head soundly on your pillow. Soundly? I don't know. Comfortably. This is from Shame and Secrets filled out by Charlotte. She is uh, bisexual in her 20s. Um, She writes, I find myself attracted to males and females but have never acted on it. She was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional. My parents were loving and supportive, but for a period of six years, both were unemployed or underemployed due to the economy. This resulted in some stress in the home despite their efforts to shield their four kids from it. That aside, I think the religious climate in the community was more damaging than anything I faced at home. Not hard to picture that. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I never reported it. I was pressured by a popular older girl to touch her in ways that I wasn't comfortable with. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I still think about these 10 minutes in my life close to two decades after the fact, but when I relive it in my mind now, I do everything she wanted me to, even the things I refused to do at the time. I was ashamed of myself when it happened because I didn't stand my ground, but also because I grew up in a strict religious house and community and felt that caving to peer pressure cost me a seat in heaven. I am still ashamed of myself now because that power dynamic of uh, 
dominant and submissive, especially with another female, is the only way I feel aroused. I am ashamed that seeing myself as the victim feels so erotic. I also feel like every time I run through this event in my mind, the wound becomes that much deeper. She hurt me once, and I am ashamed I have hurt myself over and over again all these years. I would try to forgive yourself um, about all of that, everything uh, about that. I know I sound like a broken record, but um, deepest, darkest secrets. I've never told anyone about how she took me to her room and made me get under the sheets with her and how she was sweet and then became stern, how I said no and fought back tears when I realized what was going on. And I've never told anyone how she made it seem like we came to a compromise when she got what she wanted and I felt I left feeling dirty. I am still sorting out my hang-ups about relationships and intimacy and sexual orientation. I am almost 30 and have never been with anyone else in an intimate setting. She is still the only person I have ever kissed, and I am worried that because it took me so long to come to terms with what happened, that it is too late for me to move on and have normal relationships. It is never too late to move on. Never. Um, uh, I would... Actually, I would say... um, somebody about to be euthanized it's too late for them to move on um sexual fantasies most powerful to you um dom sub scenarios featuring rope bondage usually as a threesome sometimes in a group with public humiliation would you ever consider telling a partner close friend no because that is messed up um that's not messed up um that's totally normal do these secrets and thoughts generate any uh, particular feelings towards yourself? Uh, it feels erotic and shameful at the same time. Uh, well, welcome to most of the population. Uh, it feels safer to simply be an object for someone else's pleasure than to be an active participant in an intimate way. I, I really relate to that. I really relate to that. So you're not alone. This is from... Uh, shame and secret survey filled out by Roy. He's straight in his 30s. Um, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Was abused by his mom. Um, never been sexually abused. Uh, deepest, darkest thoughts. I feel so ugly that I haven't had sex with my wife in over a month, even with her asking nightly. Deepest, darkest secrets. I can't stop stealing cash from anyone I know. I will go through purses and wallets every chance I get. I wonder... If there's an addiction behind that or if it's just um, kleptomania. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Me choking her. Uh, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? Yes. Uh, do these generate any particular feelings? Not really. I am numb all the time. It feels like to me anyways. Um, sending you a big hug, Roy. And if there's an underlying um, addiction... Or if the addiction itself is just stealing, go go talk to somebody about that because that's that numbness doesn't have to be there. That's the numbness is a result of of the addiction. It's it's doing its job, which is to numb us because the feelings otherwise are too overwhelming. But a good support group will give you tools to cope with those overwhelming feelings. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by. Ang Marie, she is uh, straight in her 20s, never been sexually abused, um, was raised in an environment that was stable and safe. Um, deepest, darkest thoughts. I think about checking into the psych ward and saying I'm suicidal just so I can take a break from my life, have a few days where there will be no outside pressure. 
pathetic, I know. I vaguely, th- I don't think it's pathetic. Um, I have thought that thought many times. Um, I want, I want that my, my external circumstances to match my internal circumstances so I can stop having to plaster a look on my face. This is when I was depressed. I'm actually in a good place. Um, I vaguely think about killing myself sometimes, not seriously, just in passing. I'm afraid of sex, and that makes me feel broken. I don't want anything to do with it, and I don't want any kind of close boy friendish relationship, and I wonder if that makes me a freak. But I still think about sex sometimes, and that makes me feel just weird. Deepest, darkest secrets. I was verbally and physically physically abusive to my brother when we were younger. I used to beat the crap out of him and say absolutely horrible things. I feel terrible about it and have asked his forgiveness. He said he forgives me, but I'm not sure he realizes how horrible I was. He does realize he does realize it and he's forgiving you, so listen to him. Let him forgive you. Um, I wish someone would have stopped me. I've tried to make up for it, being the best sister I can be to him, and now we have a pretty good relationship, but it still haunts me. I can't look at pictures of us when we were kids because all I can think is, how could you hurt that? Look at how little he was. He couldn't even defend himself properly. I recently started self-harming again. It's not near as bad as it was in high school, but I'm still embarrassed to admit that I've done it, especially because last night I moved from cutting to beating myself with a belt. I didn't even realize how bad it was until I caught a glimpse of my back in the mirror today and was shocked to see it littered with dark, ugly, and horrible-looking bruises. It scares me that I hurt myself that bad and didn't even realize it at, at the time. At least with cutting, I always knew when to stop. With this, I just kept going until I was exhausted and couldn't do it anymore, and that is fucked up. Who does that to themselves? And the worst part is, I know how to avoid hurting myself. There are things I can do, other coping skills I can use that aren't destructive, but it just feels so damn right when I'm doing it. All I can think is, you deserve this. And then later think, why? Why do I deserve this? What is so horrible about me that I deserve to beat the crap out of myself? I never seem to have an answer. Well, I think it would help if you stopped beating yourself up about your relationship with your brother when you were children. Um, you know, uh, there's an amazing video about living with, um, and, and I'm not uh, saying that you're a borderline, uh, you have borderline personality disorder, um, but there's a great video about this. And one of the things that when people have borderline personality disorder, their feelings come about so intensely that they often choose cutting because it's a release from from those um, intense feelings. And um, one of the people on the video, I think it was Marsha Linehan, said that a good coping tool is to get some ice cubes and hold those in your hand. And that is a safe way to find another outlet for the overwhelming feelings. So just throwing that throwing that out there to anybody who struggles with, with self-harm. Try, try the, holding the ice cubes in your hand. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Honestly, I don't have any fantasies. I guess I'm pretty sexually repressed. I mean, the first time I went into a sex shop 
and watched porn later. I was 26 and only did it because I wanted to see if it was as horrible as my Christian upbringing led me to believe. Uh, For weeks afterward, I was convinced I had ruined my sexual purity and was going to be punished somehow for it. I masturbated for the first time about two months ago and felt so ashamed afterwards that I wanted to die. I couldn't even look at myself in the mirror for two weeks because I felt so awkward that I'd actually done that. I can't believe I'm even saying this stuff. I can't imagine how repressive your upbringing was, and I encourage you to start hanging around people that aren't sexually repressed. Um, would you ever consider telling a partner close friend? No, I don't really have any. Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? It makes me feel weird that I don't have any fantasies and that I don't even really think about sex that much because it seems to be such a driving force for people. It makes me feel weird that I'm almost 30 and haven't had a single sexual encounter. I haven't even kissed a guy for God's sakes. And the first time I cuddled with a dude, I was also 26, guess it was a good year, I felt so dirty afterwards I scribbled the word whore all over my body in red ink and cried for 20 minutes when I got back to my dorm. And that was just cuddling. Nothing more. No kissing or anything. Just cuddling. All I can think when a guy touches me in a I like you kind of way is get the fuck off me. It's such a violent reaction, such a gut reaction that I have to fight. I have to fight to keep from slugging him, slapping him, or pushing him away from me with all my strength. Guess that explains why I haven't had any kind of intimate guy-girl relationship in the past two years. It just makes me feel so terrible that it's not worth it. It makes me wonder why I have such a hard time with physical affection and why it makes me feel so absolutely terrible that I avoid it. Um, I see so many surveys that are crying out for talk therapy. This one is such a good example of somebody that would benefit from going and talking to a professional. There's so much confusion and rage and self-hatred buried in you, Anne-Marie. Please go talk to somebody. You cannot, we cannot figure that stuff out on our own. It took me years to untangle the stuff that I had repressed. And you've clearly got a lot on your plate emotionally. And I'm sending you a big, big hug. This is um same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Herbert Tiddlywink. He is straight in his 30s. And his deepest, darkest thoughts, I'm a teacher in a very high-profile job in the creative arts. I go to work, work each day with over 300 students that look to me for guidance, education, support, and nurturing. I find it terribly difficult at times to be strong for them when I suffer from my own insecurities stemming from my chemical imbalances. My job is often seen as the perfect one in my field, and I love it, but I just occasionally want to be led and not to lead. Deepest, darkest secrets, I love this podcast, but I am embarrassed and I get embarrassed by the graphic on this podcast. What if someone sees the pill bottle on wheels and Big Word's mental illness on my phone? It has slowly become a big fear of mine. You know, and and uh, any comments uh, to make the show better? He writes, I love the show, but please consider changing the car and pill bottle graphic. I'm going to suggest to you that you become more open about your mental illness and ask for help instead of trying to do it your own and on your own and keep this this brave face that 
can sometimes kill us. It almost killed me. And I hate to see people suffer when they don't have to. When there are so many talented professionals out there in support groups that want to help you, Herbert. So I'm keeping the graphic. Hate to break the news, do you? Um, this one is from uh, Shame and Secrets, filled out by a woman who calls herself B-I-B-I-M-B-O-P. Uh, Bibimop? I don't know. I don't know what it is, but her survey is fascinating to me. She is um, bisexual in her 40s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, um, was the victim of sexual abuse and and reported it. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I wanted to say that since I was about four years old, I have been excited by large, round male bellies. For decades, I felt so embarrassed about this, especially since it grew into a sexual obsession. I am a small, athletic person who would be disgusted if I personally gained weight. I think often people don't understand fetish. It's not a preference. It's something that we have no control over. It's hardwired, and it's what we have to think about to get off 100% of the time. That is really why I have some empathy for pedophiles and the like. Actual pedophiles cannot help what makes them hard. They will never be able to change that. Just like me, they had no choice. It's only how we act on our desires that matter. In my case, I was able to tell my husband, not a fat guy, and we have come to some compromise, but only because I was totally honest. Reality, fantasy, different, and should be kept that way in some instances. Deepest, darkest secrets, stuffing my Barbie's clothes to make them fat way back when I was four or five, not being able to be torn away from that task, being confused by it, being ashamed, of course. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you always think about large male bellies usually that I've seen on YouTube or Flickr or fantasy feeder yes there is a huge no pun intended genre of belly porn no genitals no face we are not interested in that so I think about men with huge full bellies stuffed and heavy and uncomfortable touching and rubbing their distended bellies and finding it difficult to move groaning and holding their huge bellies is best also, I get off on having cooked for them, like it's my amazing food that has stuffed them that they couldn't stop eating because it was so good. Would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend? Yes, finally I told someone everything, then I married him. With a lot of effort, he's gained 20 pounds. He's not naturally fat, but because he's so lean and he has a perfect round belly that I love. But of course, what's important is that I have told him all this and he didn't blink an eye. The previous guys have been ashamed of their fat bellies, and that is such a huge turnoff. I love the confident, older, even arrogant guy who struts his belly and his stuff and is proud of it. He's earned it. Friends, yes, one girlfriend I told, and felt quite relieved that she is fat but loves skinny guys and is married to a guy who loves chubby girls. They have two kids, and I was heartened by her story, her confidence, and her candor. Of course, that doesn't help pedophiles, but my heart really goes out to them. Although, of course, uh, that is no comfort to them. Uh, do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? For decades, self-hatred and horrible shame because my mother is anorexic slash weight obsessed. And this was the worst possible thing that could happen to a person becoming fat. Um, my mother weighs 77 pounds at five foot seven. Wow. No longer able to stand on her own. She is confined to a wheelchair. It has really uh, 
changed over the years of therapy to help me realize how sick my mother, my uncle, uh, who was locked away for a decade, and their father was. All of them uh, sought treatment except my mother, who has managed to survive on her crazy OCD and starvation patterns forever. Really, I don't know how her body goes on. It is just all in the mind. Having said that all, I still hate myself, but it's because of my shitty shitty personality, not an eating disorder. I am normal size and loved healthy food and working out. I don't have shame around my body because I know it's great. However, I hate my personality. Hey, if it's not one thing, thank you for that. Um, I don't know how to pronounce your name, so I'm not going to try to. I'm not going to try to mangle it. But um, thank you for that. Uh, you know, I I love hearing the breadth of experience out there. That's um, you're not alone. I know there are other people that that. Um, relate to that even though it's not something I typically hear a lot of um, the fact that there's stuff out there I hope you can not feel shame about that um, and the happy moment we're going to go out on was sent in by Danny and uh, she writes I was taking the subway one morning and noticed a six year old making faces at a two year old that she obviously didn't know it was really cute to watch them interact then as the six year old was leaving she reached out to the two year old who reached right back to her it was the sweetest thing to see two people connect uh, so simply and beautifully in a, in a public space. No inhibitions, just reaching out to one another because they could relate to each other. No one else seemed to notice them. It was their own little joyful world in a hectic environment. It made my day. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. And thank you to my guest, Cameron. And thank you to you guys for helping me do this show and keep it going. And remind me that I'm not alone. And I hope you know that you're not alone. Thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.